23rd of May, 2017, at Denver University. And we were going to look today. Can everybody hear me? Yes? We're going to talk today about finding our place and trying to understand who we are and what would be our best job or vocation. We're going to look specifically today at our, our job, our career, our vocation, whatever you want to call it. So it's very interesting, I, I think, that the same sacred literature, the Bhagavad Gita, that talks about transcendence and enlightenment and spiritual perfection, also talks about finding the right career. That's not a very long work, but still that's in there, in several places. And the longer work, the Bhagavad Purana, has extensive sections about finding the right career and how to work properly in the world. One of the things I find very attractive about the whole historical and traditional basis of bhakti yoga is that it's a very holistic philosophy. It's not just a philosophy of transcendence. It's a philosophy of how to act transcendentally in everything so that you come to a consciousness by which you are experiencing the divine in everything that you do in addition to having a direct personal relationship with the divine. The basic parameters for having a satisfying career and a happy career is what we're going to look at tonight in in a very brief form. And I'm going to be talking about general overall principles rather than specific details. And then we'll have some time when we can discuss and you can ask questions about any particular detail. But I don't think in the time we have available that we're possibly going to be able to cover this in every permutation and category that you could possibly think of. So the first principle is that our career should be according to our nature. That our means of earning a living, our means of sustaining our, our body and our in this world should be something that's our nature. And then what do we mean by nature? We mean that each of us inherently is born with a particular inclination, things that we particularly are good at and that we particularly like, a certain way of acting. And anyone who has more than one child can tell you that this is a fact. And people who have twins or triplets, I mean, children raised in the same household by the same parents in the same community at the same time are going to manifest different ways of behaving that are inherent to them. And that no amount of punishment, reward, training, environment ever gets rid of. Now that nature may be manifest in a positive or a negative way, depending on their training and their environment and their encouragement and so forth. But it's there. And that nature can be called, you know, your personality, and you have all kinds of tests that measure personality what exactly you're going to call it and how exactly you're going to define it is a whole area that we can talk about. Then there's also, again, how we're trained to use that nature. So some people are in a situation with their family, their environment, where they don't get the proper training for their nature. Their nature really never blossoms. It, it, never, it never becomes what it, what it could have been. Whereas other people are in an environment where their basic nature is encouraged and, and trained. Now, just about any human being, putting aside our 
bodily restrictions. You know, if you're only like four foot four, you're probably not going to be a very good basketball player, for example. But putting aside absolute physical restrictions, almost any human being can be trained to become very good at almost anything. If you have the right trainer and you have the right kind of training and the right kind of environment, you can become very, very good. Maybe you can't get, you know, like to Olympic standard or Nobel Prize standard, but you can become very, very good at almost anything. Of course, most of us don't have the opportunity to get training in almost anything. Again, we have, we have a certain nature and then we have certain opportunities that are available to us depending on where we live and who we are. Now, the most ideal thing is that someone in your environment recognizes your nature early on, identifies how that nature can be used in a positive way, because all natures can be used both negatively and positively, and arranges for you to have the appropriate training and experiences that will bring out your nature in a positive way. That's the ideal. I must say the ideal doesn't always happen. In fact, I'd say generally it doesn't happen. Generally, our parents and teachers do not recognize what our nature is. And if they do, they don't recognize it in necessarily a positive way. So I can give you a very, very simple example of a family that I, I visit regularly. So they have a number of children, and one of their children is very reserved. He has the ability to just focus and he can completely focus on whatever task he's doing to the point that he doesn't notice anything else in his environment at all. You know, I, I used to say to him, hey, you know, if I walked in in a bikini with orange feathers in my hair, you wouldn't even notice that I was in the room. And he just, he just can block out everything and focus. Then he has a brother about a year and a half younger than him who's exactly the opposite. He can't focus on anything. He's always aware of what everybody else is doing is in his environment. He's completely, he knows exactly what everybody else is doing all the time. And he's always trying to manage what everybody else is doing. <laughs> and he very rarely manages himself. So he, he's, he has a lot of difficulty focusing on anything, completing anything on his own. But he's very, very aware of what everyone else is doing. And he's very involved with trying to get everybody else to do their different stuff. So these are two brothers. Same house, at the same time, in the same place, basically the same upbringing. Now, the parents with both of these boys, who are basically opposite in nature, they have not recognized their, their nature as something positive and nurtured it. So with the boy who's very focused, he hears over and over again, why don't you notice what's going on and get involved when things need to be done? Can't you see that, you know, can't you see the garbage is overflowing and take care of it? Can't you hear your baby sister is crying? Why, why are you just stuck there doing something? Why don't you take initiative to get involved? So he's constantly being harassed by his family members for the fact that he has this ability to focus and shut out the world. And his brother is constantly being harassed. Why don't you mind your own business? And he must hear this again 10, 15 times a day. Why don't you now, fortunately, each of these boys were able to get experiences outside the home where people saw their natures in a different light. And uh, the one boy who focuses, he's now uh, studying to become an astronomer, which requires long hours of staring into a telescope. And, uh, and he, I, he obviously loves it. And he's just, he wants to be a scientist and an astronomer. 
the other boy has gotten now a lot of experience in leadership and management. At one point, he was doing some volunteer work in a school, and it was a small school, elementary school, 80 kids, all different ages, I think like 5 to 12. And during recess time, he took all 80 children of ages 5 to 12 and engaged all of them together in a game. And the teachers there said, no one has ever been able to do this before. And he's able to manage large numbers of people and large numbers of things and be aware of everything that's going on and coordinate everything. So each of these boys, somehow or other, has been able to find themselves, but their family was not able to help them. The family was just putting them down for the qualities that they had. No one in the family ever asked the question, where is there a career where this person's talents would be an asset instead of a downside? And this kind of story is something that you see played out in schools and in families all the time, all over the world. You know, most of our schools are very narrowly designed for a certain type of nature. You know, if you're a sit-down, quiet bookish, detail person, you know, then, then you're talented. And if you're anything else, you're not particularly talented. Anything else you're seeing basically as a disturbance. Am I correct? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very extreme situation. But that would be the ideal. The ideal would be that somebody notices what your talents and your personality is, and then they put you in situations where those are going to be an asset. And they train you and give you experiences so that you really blossom in your areas of strength. At the same time, we all need to learn how to deal in our areas of weakness because life isn't always about our areas of strength. So at least to be able to cope. You know, it's just like if you're speaking to someone who doesn't speak English, you ought to at least be able to cope. You ought to be able to communicate at least the most basic life necessary things without using language. Does that mean you want to do that all the time? Probably not. So, like that. All right, so if it doesn't stop there, because if all we do is have a job that it's a, that's in accord with our nature, that's not enough to satisfy us. It's an important first step, but it's not sufficient. We also want to be able to work according to our nature in a way that's dynamic where we're constantly feeling that we can improve and get better and better and better, and, and hence the popularity of never-ending video games, where you never, you never finish the game. There's always a new level of mastery that you can go to. So this is a natural human urge to get dynamically better and better and better at something. And the best kind of career is one where you can work at an optimum level according to your nature, and at the same time, you can always stretch a little. And you can always stretch a little, and there's always something more to know, and there's always something, there's always some greater and greater challenge. Okay, but even that isn't enough to really make us happy. Beyond that, we all want to be engaged in something that has value and meaning. There's a strong urge in human beings to do something that has some value and meaning. You know, even criminals want to be remembered by their family. And they, they you know, they, we just have this urge to do something that has some value beyond ourselves. Sometimes we think of it as beyond our life, you know, that we'll be remembered. 
I was uh, watching this video of a paramedic, and he was saying that whenever he's in situations where people, there's no way he's going to save them. They're definitely going to die. He says, and then you're going to die. He says one of the three things that they're really concerned about is, will anybody remember me? So we can think about a value and meaning to what we do as, will it last after our death? Will it go on? Which, by the way, for most of us, it won't. Just boy. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about this, so how many of you here know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Well, there you go. That means your grandchildren's grandchildren will not know your name. And that's your own family. So this is, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. As I said, I have a, a married grandchild. My granddaughter's married. One of my grandsons is engaged. So I was thinking, you know, okay, well, so let's say that she has a baby in the next year or two. So that child will, I mean, I could conceivably live another 20, 30 years. So it's possible that that child would get to know me and have a relationship with me. But my parents have already passed. So that child is not going to know my parents. You understand? So I'd be that child's great-grandmother, but the great-great is gone. And that's the general tendency. I mean, I had a great-great-grandmother. I, I know one name of one great-great-grandparent who was alive until I was, I don't know, four or five years old. But often we think of meaning that way. Well, meaning that will last after I'm gone. For the vast majority of us, that's not going to happen. Now, very, very, very few people are going to remember after their passing from this world, for a little while, maybe 5, 10, 15 years, but probably not much more than that. And then we think about meaning, well, let's see. If I could somehow change the world, and of course when you're young, I'm sorry about this, but when you're young, you really think you're going to change the world. And I don't know, the world's been pretty much going on. So even though there's been major changes in the world, you know, the basic problems haven't really gone away. So we've conquered smallpox, but we haven't conquered disease. Did you make this place, like, super hot from super cold? Yeah, the too hot now. Yeah. What did you turn it up to? 68. Well, that's all. Could you turn it a little bit? Sorry. So we still have disease. We still have people dying. We still have war, we still have poverty, we still have inequality, we still have exploitation. You know, we're hoping, well, we'll get to a point in the world, well, that will probably all go away. But that's not really very likely. It's not really very likely. And I was thinking about someone like Bill Gates. <coughs> who spends a lot of money trying to conquer disease. But he hasn't been able to conquer disease. <clears throat> and if we think about, you know, aid workers that maybe even sacrifice their lives, but still they can't conquer disease. Or all the work that we've done to eliminate slavery in the world. And there's still slavery in the world, which is sort of astonishing to me, I suppose. Even in America, there's still slavery. So are we going to really be able to solve all the problems of the world? We think, well, if I can make a dent in them. You know, if, if I somehow or other I could do my part to make a dent in them. So I was reading an analysis of different careers 
and to what extent they're able to deal with human suffering. And it was very sobering. You know, you think about the kind of careers where you're really going to save lives and you're really going to change the quality of lives. And you find that most of us are going to have a very limited impact. You know, so this one organization was saying, okay, if you can have the greatest number of people, the greatest amount of impact. But even if you spend your whole life, you know, you can help 100 people to live an extra year. Or 100 people that didn't get a particular kind of disease. Is, is that enough to say, well, what I'm doing, my work has value? And then when we're talking about value, what exactly do we mean? What does meaning mean? Does it mean I help people eat, I help people not get sick, I help people find a suitable marriage partner, I clean up the oceans? You know, what does it exactly mean that it has value? So the Bhagavad Gita is describing, and the Srimad Bhagavatam also, is describing a very different way of looking at value, something that goes beyond all that. Now, all that's important. We should try to give people food and medicine and a happy life, and I'm not saying that that's not important. But if that's the only thing we do, it's not going to be enough to fill our desire for meaning and purpose in our work. You know, if you think, okay, I'm going to try to earn $100,000 a year, and that way I can give $30,000 a year to charity, and I'm going to find the charities that have the biggest impact. Is that going to be enough to say, all right, what I, really, what I did really has meaning, that it really makes a difference? I mean, I worked as a, as a teacher of children for many years, and, you know, all of the kids will say, thank you, you really helped me, but you often wonder, well, how much of a difference did I make for each individual person? How much did I really contribute? And you look at how much you worked, you know, and often you're, you're putting in like this much work and the person says, well, yeah, that one thing you taught me is really helpful and you're thinking, oh, it's like this much of the, of the energy that I put into this person that they found it was something valuable. I, I did some research on what kids felt were their most valuable things in school and it was almost all non-academic stuff. You know, I, and I spent decades designing curriculum. <laughs> and then they're saying, well, the things that impact me the most were the field trips. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the, the dramas we put on and the special guest speakers. And that's what really impacted my life. And I thought, wow, I was putting all my energy into the wrong things. So it, it's very, very hard to really figure out value and meaning like that. How does, how does our life have any purpose? So the Bhagavad Gita is looking at it from another perspective. And that is, first of all, to start with the concept that all of reality has a coherent purpose. That purpose and value and meaning is not only, it certainly is, but not only something that we decide for ourselves. Well, this has meaning for me. And this has value for me. And I'm going to assign it with value and meaning. But there's an overarching, altogether purpose and value. And we can look at this, it's, it's very interesting in our, in our Vedic literatures, 
that we say that you can conceive of the ultimate supreme validly at several different levels. So books like the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam do not say there's only one proper conception and only one proper way, which I find fascinating. So they give four levels at which one can understand the ultimate supreme and the ultimate source. One, which has become very popular in modern society, is the universe. But the universe as a being. The universe as having consciousness. The universe as being a form in which each of us are like a cell in an organ in the universe. And the universal body is described in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 11 and in the Bhagavad Purana or the Srimad Bhagavatam, it's called either name, in the second canto, in the eighth canto, in the twelfth canto. Detailed descriptions of how the universe exists as a being. And I find it fascinating that some people who have near-death experiences have some vision of the universe as a being. Not all, but some do. Then the next level is the understanding of the Supreme as an all-pervasive, absolute oneness of energy. And in Sanskrit, this is called the Brahman. Just simply an impersonal, pervasive light filled with peace and joy and being into which one basically forgets one's identity. Then one can also understand the Supreme as the soul of the universe. And again, you have people who have near-death and out-of-body experiences describe each of these. So the soul of the universe is a person. It's a being, a personality, who within this universal body is like the main personality. Something like within our bodies, we are the main person, but our cells are also beings. They each have their own little lives, right? So the cells in my heart, in my lungs, in my eyes, and they have their own little life. They're eating and they're sleeping, I suppose, some sort of sleep that cells do. And they reproduce and they defend themselves and they have their little existence. And the cells in my body have their own little existence, I would assume, without the awareness that I'm here. They're not really understanding that they're part of my body. They're just understanding their existence kind of separately. So in a similar way, this universe exists as a body, and there's an over-soul in Sanskrit called paramatma. And while we each have our own little lives, we're each part of that body with this big soul. Then another way to understand the Supreme is as a transcendent God, which is what most people mean when they talk about God. A person who exists separate from the world and has his own activities and his own realm and who exists with us as our creator and maintainer, and with whom we can have, if we so desire, a relationship of love. And we say that the Supreme exists in all four of these features. That they're all truth, they're all completely true, and they're all different manifestations of the same truth. They're not competing truths. Now, whichever way one wants to understand the whole and the source, we can look at, is there an overriding purpose. And the overriding purpose is described with three Sanskrit words, sat, chit, and ananda. Sat can mean what's eternal, what's real, what's true, what exists. 
Chit means to know, to understand, and ananda means happiness. So these are the three basic features and purpose of reality. If we align our work with that purpose in accord with how the whole defines those things, then we find real value and real meaning in our work. And our work gets real value and real meaning regardless of the external quantification of our work. So we no longer have to assign value and meaning as to how many people do I, did I help to live how many years longer? How many pounds of pollution did I pick up? You know, how many wars did I avert or something like that? We don't have to have some sort of mathematical calculation for our value. But our value is, am I in sync with the whole? I mean, something like, if, if my skin cell is working in harmony with my desires for the health of the whole body, then that's its meaning. That's its value. And how do you quantify that? You can't really. And, and nor even, oh, do we look at value in terms of quality. Can I even say, well, I only helped one person, but I really helped them a lot. Or I really helped them in, in a significant way. We don't have to measure things like that either. Just simply, am I in sync with the whole? And if we are, not only, it's, it's not just some sort of theoretical, abstract idea, but one has an evidence procedure that one then feels completely fulfilled. Now, how do you work in sync with the whole? Again, we're really doing this in summary. <laughs> one is that whatever we earn, we share. We don't just keep everything for ourselves. Uh, even if we don't have much, we share. And sharing isn't just money, because money isn't the only kind of wealth. We can have a wealth of knowledge. We can have a wealth of strength and power. Uh, we can have wealth of beauty. Uh, we can have a wealth of, of detachment, and, and uh, not just knowledge, but, but wisdom and understanding. And there's so many ways in which we can have wealth that we gain from our career. And we should share that with others. In fact, we should be happy if others get as much or more than we have. That's the opposite of, of envy. And again, that can be done in just a simple charity that we share money with other people, that we share food with other people. You know, the concept of people having a career where there's this, they're just a single person and they live in a place all by themselves and they take their money and spend it all on themselves and whatever they want to do is a very recent invention in human society. Isn't it? Sociologically speaking. Used to, be, used to be most people were married by the time they were 20, 25, yes? So at least you were sharing your food and money with somebody. And the concept now that you're, you know, I'm, okay, I'm earning my money and I have my own place and I'm just going to do whatever I want with my stuff. And I'm not responsible to maintain anybody or take care of anybody. It's, it's a very, very, very recent idea in human society. So we should be sharing with somebody. If we don't have a spouse, if we don't have children... And we should be sharing with someone. And we should be sharing our, our, our wealth again. And I'm not just talking about wealth in terms of money. But we, we should be sharing the things that we enjoy from our work. The things that bring us prosperity and richness in our life. You can think of it as richness in our life. 
And that we should be sharing with others. And then we should also take time on a regular basis to specifically, explicitly dedicate ourselves to a connection with the whole. And that's the purpose, or the original purpose, shall we say, of all the religious rituals in the world. Now, they become something else in time, that's another thing. But the original intention in every religion in the world of having some sort of daily and weekly and cyclical ritual that you do is like, okay, right. <laughs> everything that I am, everything that I'm getting, I'm getting from the whole. And I therefore should dedicate everything to the whole. And some sort of means of dedication, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through study, something. And again, you know, that can be done whether one conceives as the whole, as the form of the universe, as the absolute energy, as the soul of the universe, or as a transcendent person. And traditionally, that kind of connection in most systems has something to do with food. So it's, it's very good whenever we eat to take, a t to take some time and say, okay, this is going to be a time when I'm going to connect with my source. I'm going to connect with the whole. I'm going to remember that I'm part of something bigger. And I'm going to dedicate some of my time, some of my energy, some of my thought, some of my emotion. And also very commonly to have some time set with time. Like every morning and noon and night or every night before you go to bed or every morning or at a certain time of the week or a certain time of the lunar cycle that, okay, I'm going to connect. Ultimately, one should try to be connected always. But even if one is connected always, there's still a time that you step back, like in a human relationship. If you have some romantic relationship, you may feel always emotionally connected to that person. But you also want to spend some time explicitly, specifically, being with that person, connecting. Yes? And you want to do that on, a, on some sort of a regular basis. I mean, it may not be a scheduled basis, but you want to have some regular time where if there's somebody that you love, that you're not doing anything other than being with them. You're not being with them and you're not, just, you're not being with them to do something, but you're just being with them. And if you never spend any time just being with them, uh, then you're not really going to have much of a romantic relationship, I would say. Another kind of relationship. Then another basic principle of connecting with the whole is that whatever work that we do should be done honestly. Now, honestly, is, it's, it's actually a very simple principle that we pay the value of things and we charge the value of things. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean money. But we don't try to get something for, for nothing. We don't try to cheat others. We don't try to take something from somebody without giving them something of equal value in return. And again, that we pay fairly and we, we charge fairly. We're not, we don't try for some get-quick scheme that is going to be draining somebody else's pockets. That also means that we develop a level of satisfaction with whatever we can enjoy through honest I mean, those of us living in this country 
are already living at a higher level than almost anybody else on the planet. To most other people on the planet, everybody sitting in this room is very wealthy. And to be satisfied with what I can earn, honestly, and not be, you know, greedy, 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 greedy for more and more and more and more and more and more, more, which one never has any time to enjoy anyway because one is working so hard to get all those things that you can't enjoy. So that's another principle of how to work, to be satisfied with what one can get through honest labor. And another thing is not to spend all of one's time and energy on career. That career should take a, a part of one's life, but not all of one's life. That it's, it's not everything, not to become consumed by work, but to have that within a, a balanced life. Now, when we look at, at nature, the, the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam talk about fields of work. They talk about nature in terms, basically, of four big, big fields of work. And in each field, there's going to be tens or hundreds of thousands of different careers. One is the field of ideas. Another is the field of government. Another is the field of resources, dealing with the land and the animals, generating wealth. And another is the field of function and beauty. Those people who keep society running and make society beautiful. And there's different sorts of principles for people who work in each of those fields. How they can be sharing their wealth, how they can be dedicating to the whole, and how they can do it in such a way that they find real meaning in life. So as I said today, I just was a brief time, and all I've talked about is general principles. I haven't talked about specific details, which I told you in the beginning, so if you wanted specific details, I didn't possibly have time. And I didn't even go into all the principles in depth. I kind of just tried to, to touch on them uh, and give you an, an overview. And we have time now for how long for discussion? Maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Okay. So anything anybody wants to ask? Yes? Um, so you, this is a question that I have always pondered with. Like you mentioned about how the rates and people like me know a lot of money, but not able to make a big... Dent. Uh, in a dent, yes. Yeah. So, but what I know is like I have been working sales where uh, every month we are given sales targets and I work, my team was like, they were not the most brilliant people in the universe, but every month my target level is increased and I, my, my team and I can it, we go ahead. I do that because I get some monetary benefits, incentives, everybody works towards it. So, and I would say, take example of this telecom industry, cellular phone, everyone has it. Look at the way it's Every, each person, even in underdeveloped nations, how fast is technology spread? Why can we not replicate that when it comes to, say, education? Like, why is it not happening? Isn't this world my business? Why is only that when it comes to for-profit corporates, they replicate scale? Why is it not happening? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I think I'm uh, studying business analytics here. I want to use it. You have, to, you have to change the motive. If, if people are not working with their consciousness in accord with the whole, then they're working to dynamically increase at the cost to somebody else. It's as if the heart was competing with the lungs. Now, you want heart muscle to compete with each other because you want the strongest heart muscle to be there. 
but you don't want the heart competing with the lungs. So if people have a mentality that we're all separate from the whole and we're all looking out for our own interest, then they'll expand dynamically, but it's at somebody else's cost. And if you look at the things you mentioned, they're expanding dynamically, but is, is there some contraction someplace else? Is there, an, is there an equal and opposite contraction someplace else? Correct. So that's not actually an increase. But why is, why is it when it's being tried in a certain... Like but you're, you're, you're saying it's a dynamic increase, but it's not. I'm asking, is there an equal and opposite contraction someplace else? Have you been to China? Where in India? Mumbai. So you understand. A government that doesn't, I mean, hopefully now under the new government it will be a little better. But a government that doesn't care about the welfare of the citizens. Like, at all. Whatever complaints we have about our various governments in America, when you go to these countries and you see governments who don't, of course, now head of state, is would like to do away from a lot of these protections for us, but anyway. You go to some of these countries where the governments don't protect the people, like at all. They don't protect them from crime, they don't protect them from pollution, they don't have any protection for health. So often the very things that are, that are dynamically increasing and making our lives easier are being done by making somebody else's life more difficult. And there's often a direct relationship that people are working in situations where they're exposed to harmful chemicals and they don't have any kind of health insurance and I mean when I was in Shanghai I couldn't see the sky there was just no sky it was so weird there was no sky it was just this low hanging pollution you didn't even see the tops of the buildings. It was so weird. And by like the seventh day there, I had to go to the hospital. And they said, oh, this is from the pollution. <laughs> so you, it's a different thing you're asking about. Could we act in such a way that the whole planet dynamically improved without an equal and opposite contraction somewhere? The answer is yes. But to do that, you'd have to have a vast majority of people acting in harmony with the whole. Just some people doing it wouldn't change the whole planet like that. Their own lives would become very satisfying and meaningful. But if you're going to change the whole planet, you have to get some kind of critical mass. I don't know what it would be, but you'd have to get some sort of critical mass of people who are acting non-exploitively. Indeed. No, no, it's not at all impossible. It's not at all possible. In, in our sacred writings, we have descriptions that the world was like that and it goes like that in cycles. That there's cosmic seasons. How much time? Huge. <laughs> no, 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 no. Much bigger. The, we're, we're right now in the cosmic winter and we haven't, we've been in it for 5,000 years, and there's another 427,000 years to go. 
before the cosmic spring starts. The descriptions of what the Earth is going to be like at the end of this period are pretty bleak. But the end of the period is in hundreds of thousands of years? 427,000. That's not absolutely exact. <laughs> and then, but then again, it will become the cosmic spring. So that's not a, a permanent destruction. I mean, even our scriptures talk about full universal destruction, but then again, universal recreation. It talks about time and cycles, not linear time. So, at least according to our scriptures, the world has been like that. That there was a time when people didn't need to do agriculture because everything just grew on its own. I mean, you can still see that. I've got a room in Hawaii where I stay. And and you can... I mean, the reason there's so many homeless people in Hawaii is that it's kind of cool. You can be homeless in Hawaii. (laughs) You don't need a home. I have a friend who was intentionally homeless for a year in Hawaii. She said she gained weight just, you know, climbing up the avocado trees. We have, we have wild avocado trees in our backyard. So the whole earth used to be like that. Yeah, you can still, the, the water's falling on the mountains, and it's, you can drink that water. Coming down from the mountains, fruit trees everywhere. Coconut, avocado, guava, banana. It's everywhere. And the weather's always nice. You really don't need a shelter. Even when it rains, it's warm. You know, it doesn't really matter. So we have information that the whole planet was like that. And then gradually it degraded, and then again it will go up. I mean, we have some predictions that we're coming to a... a a time, like sometimes in the winter, there's a few days where it's warm. Yes? Even here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like we're in spring and we just had winter a few days ago. Mm-hmm. What was that all about? Mm-hmm. So, you know, even in the winter, sometimes there can be a few days of t-shirt weather. So, you know, it's, there's a prediction that even right now in this age that we're going to have a 10,000-year span that's going to be like previous ages of the earth. So it's possible. I don't think it's going to be easy, but it's possible. And you, you are seeing a, a counter-movement on the earth right now. You're seeing a movement of people towards ecological awareness and towards being non-exploitive. You see a movement towards vegetarianism and veganism and meditation. You're seeing a, a, a movement in that direction. So if, if that kind of movement can reach critical mass, then yes, there will be a change. But it's not comparable to saying, well, you know, if we can become dynamic in sales or if we can become dynamic in cell phones, it's not comparable. Because what you're, I'm sorry, but what you're talking about is an exploitive industry. So if if we can dynamically exploit, why can't we dynamically love, I guess is what you're saying. And the answer is you can, but you can't dynamically love the same way you dynamically exploit. It's a different system. You can be as good as you can be bad, but you do it differently. If you try to dynamically love in the same way you dynamically exploit, then you end up with all the perversions of religions that have happened in history. 
No. Please be a, an intentional participant. But it is a different thing. You want to be careful. If you try to do it in the same way, you'll end up with something that externally looks spiritual but isn't. Yes? And we've had lots of that. Yes? Um, a question I have is something I struggled with when I read the Bhagavad Gita. Yes. Is that there's three different paths when they talk about purpose. Okay. Like a Brahmin, a warrior, and then a third. Mm, um, four. There's four that she spoke about, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's the field of ideas. Mm-hmm. So those of us who work in the, in the field of ideas, that means people who are going to be teachers, teachers of anything, whether you're a teacher of dance or you're a teacher of philosophy. Mm-hmm the people who are giving some wisdom in society, the people who are setting the criteria for all the other fields of work and giving the guidance for society. Then you have the field of government. So those are the people who are providing law and order, peace, security, means of life, water, electricity, parks, schools, hospitals, so forth. Then you have the field of resources. Those are the people who are, who are generating wealth. So in government, they're redistributing wealth. They're collecting taxes and they're redistributing them. And then the people in the field of resources are the only ones actually generating wealth. So they're taking the soil, the animals, the water, and so forth. And from that, they're bringing forth the wealth of society and what society needs. Then the fourth field is that of function and beauty. So in just pure function would be like taking care of sanitation. Mm-hmm. You know, function and beauty would be architecture and, and clothing. It has both function and beauty. And then pure beauty would be like, you know, just some art that doesn't, well, stained glass windows also windows that this function. But if you had, say, just a painting on your wall or, you know, a dance or just music, so it's not fulfilling any pure physical survival function, but it's the only thing that's adding actual pleasure to the world. So those are the four main fields of work. The, the one I read, it only had three, but understanding those better helps with my question. Yeah. The Sanskrit question words is, for them are the field of ideals is the, ideas is the Brahmana, the field of government is the Ksatriya, the field of resources is the Vaisha, and the fields of function and beauty are the Shudras. Okay, thank you. My question is that I'm wondering how you are no that you fit in one category. I don't necessarily believe in categories. Um, Well, the categories are there because there's different ways of giving and dedication according to the categories. So you have a general principle that everyone should share their wealth and you have a general principle that everyone should dedicate to the whole. But how exactly do you do that? So they've taken, Krishna has taken however many careers there are, 100,000, 500,000, and put them in four main categories and said, okay, in this field of work, this is the best way to share and this is the best way to dedicate. So whenever you simplify something, you distort it a little bit. But if you, once you start getting many, more than four categories, it's hard to remember. Just like if any of you are familiar with the personality index of Myers-Briggs, anybody familiar with that? So that has four continuums. And four continuums end up with 16 categories. So, like, I know my letters in Myers-Briggs, but I can't remember what they mean. So you just, you just have four parameters and 16 types, and as soon as you have 16 types, 
It's very hard for anybody to remember people, right? Most people do the Myers-Briggs, they can't remember their letters. And if they can remember their letters, they can't remember what they mean. I mean, if I really have to think about it, okay. It's, it's complicated. Whereas personality indexes that use only two parameters, only two scales, and end up with four types, are very easy to remember. So I know a number of personality indexes that use four types. And I could teach them in an hour and everybody remembers them forever. So by having these four fields of work, it's very easy to remember and it's very easy to say. Okay, but do, does that mean that we're all in boxes? No, we're all individuals. In one, in one very real sense, there's a different way for each person. But how are you going to teach that? How are you going to communicate that? You, you've got to communicate big general principles. And then on a one-in-one -one level with a teacher or a guide, you can apply it to your personal situation. But you start off with big principles. And, and you just have to keep in mind that as soon as you're looking at big principles and big categories, there's some element of distortion there. And you just, you just have to keep that in mind. That it's, you know, it's, it's giving you an idea. It's, it's giving you a template. It's giving you a guideline. It's giving you some principles. And you can't say that everyone who works in the field of resources is going to function exact. That's ridiculous. Two people aren't going to function exactly the same. And we're all, we're all certain combinations of things. You know, we're not all just a thing. I mean, like, we're broadly divided into male and female, but if you say, well, all females are like this and all males are like this, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's just, that becomes absurd. You can make some generalities. Most females are shorter than most males. But as soon as you apply that to an individual, it becomes absurd. But, it, but you've got to have some, there's something there, you understand? And that, that's not meaningless to have general categories. Yeah, they have, it's, it's useful. It's not, it's not, not useful, <laughs> as long as you understand what its limitations are. Is that okay? Yeah. Some sort of has some sort of staying power. Yeah, it means like kind of a legacy. Is there something to be said for? I, I, I really like that you said that. I'm really I'm really grateful that you said that because I'm thinking about it. And one of the the strange things that tends to happen as we get old, and as you can see, that I'm quite a bit older than anybody else in this room, is that you become a little cynical about these sort of things. You start, you know, I, I spent a lot of time trying to do things like that, and. 
after accomplishing some of those things, I became a little cynical. And started thinking, well, even how long does that go on? How long do people really use it? How long does it really affect people? Do, do we end up with some other movement in human society that obliterates it? If you think of, you know, knowledge that was in ancient societies, even ancient societies that we know about, not even talking about like 400,000 years, but if you want to talk about civilizations, say in South, in South America or in Egypt, that had knowledge that we can't duplicate, which I think is so weird. You, you all know about this kind of thing? Because they don't teach it in school. But you know about like the buildings there that we don't have the equipment to build and we don't know how they built it? We don't know how they built it. We don't, we don't have any equipment in the world to build those buildings. We don't know how they moved the stones from a quarry 200 miles away to the top of a mountain and how they put them together without mortar so that the stones fit so tightly that you can't get a needle between the stones or a credit card between the stones. How did they do that? Nobody knows. And when you start looking at this kind of thing, you think, well, okay, I can make some contribution to a field, to a career that uplifted humanity as a whole, even if I, my name isn't remembered and I'm not remembered as a person, but I have some legacy that it goes on in that way. But even that comes to be covered literally by the sands of time, literally and figuratively, that knowledge tends to surface and become lost again in human society. And if you think about, in, is it in Peru that they have those rock sculptures you can only see from an airplane? Do any of you guys know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They must have had airplanes. What other explanation is there? But it was gone. You know, by the time the Spanish came with their slashing and bashing and bashing of the locals, there weren't any airplanes. So, and now again we have airplanes. And the people who contributed to that knowledge of astronomy and, and flight and architecture and there, there must have been people who contributed to those branches of knowledge and produced high civilizations and then it was gone and it had to be rediscovered and recreated again so that's not permanent you can say well it lasts okay and it outlasts me but how long does it last or we try to have ourselves last through procreation, you know, we'll all have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. My, my DNA will live on in, in some, some part of me in that respect. But the reason I really like that you brought that up, and I'm really sorry to be so cynical and, and so um, depressing, but I, I think it's better to put these things out on the table because otherwise we spend our lives working for something and at the end you go, So I think it's better to start from the beginning and say, let me do something that's actually permanent. So what is it that's actually permanent that we can contribute to, that's actually eternal, really, really eternal, that's not going to change even in 10,000 years or 20,000 years? Yes, because people are eternal. We, as, as a spiritual being, are eternal. And so whatever effect you have on another living being, doesn't have to be people, whatever effect you have on another living being, if 
you have an effect on them in relationship to the eternal, then that is something that is beyond our particular life in space and time on this planet, in this moment. So if you can touch somebody in a way that links them and awakens them to their eternal self and to the whole, that is something that never goes away. And that's one of the main ways in which we dedicate ourselves to the whole and connect to the whole. We try to connect others as well. And to whatever extent we do that, it doesn't have to be, it's, it's not an off-on principle. It's not like, you know, some religions teach, well, you, ha- you, you either do this perfectly and go to heaven forever, or you do this not perfectly and you go to hell forever, which is a very strange way of looking at things. But it, it's, it's on a continuum. So even if you, if you start to make an impression on another, and it doesn't have to be a human. It doesn't have to be a human. It can be a caterpillar. And I'm really not joking. If you can make an impression on any living being, because every living being is spiritually of equal value, and you can help that living being, even in some small way, to realize its eternal, blissful, spiritual nature and connect with the whole, that's never, ever lost. It's not lost in ourselves, and it's not lost in others. And that's true meaning. And we know it's true meaning because of the effect it has on us, of, the sub- of our subjective experience when we do that. It's, just, it's interesting in, in, in a church. So I was just uh, I'm rereading St. Teresa of Avila, who lived about 500 years ago in Spain, her book, The Interior Mansions. And she's talking about how do you know that you're actually communing with God instead of just imagining it, which is one of the big questions that everybody asks. And she gives one, one very subjective answer. She says, because you feel so wonderful. And you feel a, a peace and a joy and a clarity that you don't feel otherwise. So we know we're doing something of real value and real meaning. Is that actually your name? Is that actually your name? Yeah, no, I still I had a conflict with the class before this. Oh, okay. I was going to offer you my I was going to offer you my condolences. I was Mr. Trump, and I had to try to solve things between Israel and Palestine. Oh, were you successful? No, it didn't go. Did you at least know that Israel was in the Middle East? What? You didn't know that. What conflict? No, yeah, that, yeah, one of the first things Donald Trump said when he got to Israel is he said, "I just come from the Middle East." Could you imagine somebody coming here from Canada and saying, I just came here from North America? (laughs) Is that all right? So it's six o'clock. Do we have time for any more? Or what should we do? Um, Maybe one more. Yes. Uh, Briefly. uh, As um, college students or older, um, you had talked about before at a young age, having someone discover your nature. Hmm. Where should one, as not 
a child look for their nature, mm. others or themselves? Well, let's start with ourselves. You can look at what have people criticized you about that you haven't been able to fix. If there's something that people have gotten on your case about and criticized you for and and kept asking you to fix, I'm not talking about a bad habit. I'm talking about a, a personality trait. And you have not, with your greatest endeavor, been able to fix it. That's a good indication of your nature. It probably just wasn't used properly. So that's, a, that's one really good place to look. Another thing is, what do you do? You can even ask people, what do I just, what kind of things do I just do all the time? Because our nature is, not, is usually invisible to us. It's kind of like breathing. And we're often unaware that we have particular talents because we just do them. But what do we do without being paid, without being asked, you know, without any kind of external remuneration or praise what do we just tend to do what kind of things you know put us into a state of flow where we lose time and space and I'm not talking about just like playing a video game or watching a movie <laughs> those are all cheap um, imitations of flow what if we feel that there's something that like, we really enjoy doing but we wouldn't be good enough at doing it or like, it's like something like important, like it would have an effect on people and even if we feel like we would really like it, it would like we are afraid of doing it wrong because it's like, it's like an important job. Well, I have two answers to that. First of all, see if you can get really good training, which is hard to get. Um, really good training is where there's a clear parameter for what's excellent in the field and you can find some sort of a coach or mentor who can give you, at least in the beginning, frequent, specific feedback. That's not so easy to get. I mean, just frankly, it's not so easy to get. Um, You can always ask God to send it to you, and he might indeed do that. So that's one way to look at it. Another way is to break down what you like into its component parts. We, we tend to look at it, things as a big chunk. I mean, like, I had a great time, uh, what year was this, 96, 97? I had a great time working on a digital encyclopedia once. I mean, I, I, was, I just loved it. I was writing the text for the digital encyclopedia. So it was all different topics, all different spiritual topics. And I was taking very complex ideas and putting them into little boxes. Like you see at museums and zoos, you know, everything about the tiger on one little metal rectangle. Did you ever think about what it takes to do that? Because if you're just one letter off, it doesn't fit. And so you're kind of playing with the language. And you're taking this much information and you're putting it into this big of a space. That's what I was doing. And... I just, I just love what I was doing. I mean, I really loved it. Also, the, the people that had asked me to do this job were completely taking care of me. I didn't have to worry about food. I didn't have to worry where I was staying, laundry. I, everything was just taken care of. And I was also in a beautiful place out in the country in Denmark. So I was in a, a wonderful environment. And the team I was working with had a really good synergy. Now, if I said, well, I should have a career as an encyclopedia writer, 
then I, I, I'd be kind of missing the point. And I looked at it and I broke it down and I said, what made this such an enjoyable experience? Well, the topics I was writing about were topics that are, were of interest to me. So I was interested in the topics themselves. Then I was doing writing, which I really enjoyed. Then it was an intellectual puzzle. It was very intellectually, mentally challenging how to get a large quantity of information down, just summarize it to the most important points. And not only to do that, but to get it within a predetermined physical space, which is not what we usually do with words. You know, with words you might have to say, okay, it's a 5,000 page paper, it's a 10,000 page paper. You know, or even it's a five page paper. So sometimes I had one professor who said, the papers have to be five pages. You know, and if it's any more or less, then you, you really go sad. But it also has to be APA style. And APA style has a cover page that's not part of the paper. And I got an APA style program that would automatically generate all my papers in APA style, mm -hmm. which meant it, it produced a cover page. And then the first page of the actual paper was numbered with number two. So the fifth page of my paper had the number six on it. And he took my grade down for that. And after I explained it to him, he said, yes, you're right. I said, so will you fix my grade? He said, no. <laughs> Lovely child, gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> really, really friendly guy. But anyway, so sometimes you have to do that. You know, but even if it's a five-page paper, you could have it, you know, it could be four and seven-eighths. You know what I'm saying? It didn't have to fit exactly into a box. So I, I really like that mental intellectual thing that I like to put it exactly into a box. And then I also just like the way things were organized. I liked it that I was basically alone all day, me and my computer. I wasn't having to interact a lot with people. I could just focus on my tasks. People weren't bothering me. They were just taking care of what needed to be taken care of. And when I was with other people, it was either just in a social relaxing situation or I was with the team and the team had just the right mix of authority and freedom going on. So they provided the overall direction, they provided the timetable, they told me what the result is, but I was free to achieve it in whatever way that I liked. So, and then I looked at the atmosphere, I was out in the country, I was in a beautiful place and the food was good, and so I looked at those sort of things as sort of peripheral. And by, looking, by breaking it up into those component parts, I also had a lot of creativity was involved. So by breaking it up into a lot of those component parts, I was able to think of, okay, what other kinds of things could I do that would have all or most of those component parts? Does that make sense? And I, I found that there's, for pretty much everyone, there's a range of things that we can enjoy doing. And my oldest son right now is working for Microsoft designing websites but he's also designed a number of my books. So designing a book and designing a website is, is, a, is quite different. But it, it's using similar kinds of, of skills. You know, he's also a computer programmer and when he's designing the books, he does a lot of work with the fonts. He's actually created a lot of fonts. So he uses a lot of his mathematical programming ability and his creative design ability and his interest in aesthetics. And it's work that he does, he's doing it with a team, but again, he's got a lot of autonomy. 
it's, it's a place where he can, you know, there isn't some ceiling, what's the ultimate aesthetic that you can get in a website or a book. It's got a lot of room for dynamic growth. But they're quite different things. And then he also works writing computer programs or all sorts of things. But he writes them again as an art. You understand? So it's, when, when you're saying, I know what I'm good at, but it's hard to get training at it, then you might find something that uses a lot of those component skills where you can get training in it. And, and think a little broadly. You know, the kind of things you want to look at, again, what are my major fields? Do I like working in the fields of ideals and ideas? Do I like managing people and, and governance? Do I like creating wealth and resources? Do I like creating function or beauty or some combination of the two? Do I really, what, what kinds of, what, what makes my life rich? Do I need beauty to make my life rich? Do I need knowledge? Do I need strength? Do I feel that I want to have a position of leadership? Do I really feel that I want to have a lot of money? Do I have a richness and simplicity? You know, is it important for me to be around a lot of people? Am I happier working around small groups or big groups, or do I like to work alone? Do I like to have somebody tell me what to do and I just do it? Or do I like to decide myself what I'm going to do? Do I want to work with a team, with a partnership? And, and to put all those sort of things together. You know, I just mentioned a few of them. There's many, many other kinds of things that you can look at. And if you try to find the, the times in your life when you felt particularly engaged, engaged to the point that you didn't care about eating and sleeping, you know, that, that you had to go, all right, I guess I've got to go to sleep now. <laughs> you know, where your body, just, your body and brain just ceased functioning and you didn't have any choice about going to sleep. But the work itself energized you. And if you can find those kinds of times. And then, it, then it's a question of finding a good mentor. Do you want to end now? What do you want to do? Yeah, I think probably we should do a little kirtan. And then okay. Was that at least somewhat helpful? I know it was very general. And you came very late. And it was even helpful for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we have everybody you can scoot in and make a nice